Well, hurry up and turn to Psalm 130 because there is good news waiting for us there. Good news that I have a feeling someone here today, this morning, needs to hear. So there's no opening sermon illustration or introduction at all. We're just going straight to the big idea because I think some of you need to hear this because some of you don't believe it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus isn't keeping track of our sins. Jesus is not keeping track of our sins. Now, I know that's kind of like getting on a roller coaster at the beginning of a sermon and you just take off, you know, the ones that go just take off right away. We're just, there's no intro time to build you up to this, but somebody here needs to hear that this morning because you don't believe it, that Jesus is not keeping track of your sins. Isn't that good news? If you are in union with Christ by faith, then Jesus cannot remember your sins. Jesus does not use Sharpie markers. And that's exactly what Psalm 130 tells us. When you come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, he forgives you of all of your sin. It's wiped and washed clean by his blood. And that includes everything bad that you do After you become a disciple. Jesus is not sitting in heaven with a moleskin journal keeping track of all of your sins. Jesus is not recording every bad thing that you do with a sharpie marker forever marked and permanently remembered. That is not the gospel. That is not good news. That's bad news. If Jesus does use a sharpie marker, then he has taken one and written, it is finished over your entire life. If Jesus does use a Sharpie marker, then he has taken one, and he has written your name in the book of life. But when it comes to your sins, Jesus ain't keeping track of those. And that may be just what some of you need to hear again this morning from Psalm 130. So look at Psalm 130. Hear the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Psalm 130, you may not know this, it was one of Martin Luther's four favorite psalms. So be forewarned, there will be a lot of quotes by Martin Luther in this sermon. I mean, you cannot preach on Psalm 130, which was one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms, and not quote him several times. So that's what I'm going to do. Luther said that Psalm 130 was a proper master and doctor of Scripture, meaning that it teaches the basic truth of the gospel. He also said that Psalm 130 was the voice of Paul in the Old Testament. Luther believed that Psalm 130 was vintage Paul because it was oozing with God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Now, history records Martin Luther turning to this psalm at some very pivotal moments in his life. And on one dark evening, as he was suffering physically and as the devil was taunting him relentlessly, reminding him of his sins, Luther called out, to his friend Philip Melanchthon, and he said this, Come, Philip, and in defiance of the devil, let us sing the psalm 
Lord, from the depths to thee I cry. Let us sing it in full chorus and extol and praise God. Luther, like the psalmist in 130, knew the depths of depravity in his own heart. In fact, Luther said this, I am afraid of my own heart more than of the Pope and all his cardinals. Martin Luther is more afraid of what was happening in his own heart than what the Pope or the government would do to him because he was preaching justification by faith. Luther knew the depths of indwelling sin in his own heart. And that's exactly what the depths are that are mentioned in verse 1. The psalmist here is under the weight of his own sin. This is why he's crying out to Yahweh, why he's crying out to God. Because he knows and he feels the depths of his sin. And so this is what distresses him. Last week in Psalm 129, the psalmist spoke about enemies on the outside of Israel. And so he called down God's justice on those on the outside. But here in Psalm 130, the psalmist focuses not on the enemies on the outside, but the enemy within Namely, indwelling sin. Listen, if you don't look at yourself, if you don't look deep within and feel the depth and the misery of your own sinfulness, if the words of Psalm 130 do not resonate with you, if you don't blush with shame when you look into the nooks and crannies of your own heart, then you are in a kind of darkness where it is so thick that you can't really see. If you don't feel the depths of your own sin in your own heart and blush, then you are blind. You are in the dark. The psalmist in Psalm 130 feels his sin in his bones, and that's why he cries to the Lord for mercy. He's asking Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the sovereign Lord, he's asking Yahweh to not give him what he deserves. He's asking for mercy. You know, I think we're far too familiar with how merciful Jesus is. I think we sometimes forget how amazing it is that God would listen to our cries. I think sometimes we forget How amazing it is that the Lord is attentive to our cries for mercy. It's it's like we forget about breathing. I'm sure only a handful, maybe, of you thought about breathing since you've been in church this morning. Has anybody thought about breathing? I haven't, and I wrote this sermon, and I already forgot about breathing. That's how it is. We take it for granted, and I think we do that with prayer. We just seem seem to have lost the shock factor that Jesus hears and he is attentive to our cries for mercy. Verse 2 should never cease to cause our mouths to drop wide open. Jesus hears our cries. Jesus listens to sinners. That should be shocking. We sin and Jesus is merciful. We rebel against him And he's merciful to us and doesn't give us what we deserve. That's crazy. It's crazy good stuff for people who understand the depths of their own rebellion. 
And that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against Jesus. Sin is not fearing him. It's trying to do life on your own, trying to go at it your own way. It's not treasuring and delighting in Jesus as you should. And the Bible makes it clear we're all born this way. We're all born sinners. We're bad. And that's why the gospel is good news for bad people. And that's the pattern of this psalm, and that's the pattern of salvation, and that's the pattern of our lives. We see our sin, we blush, we're ashamed, we feel awful that we have broken God's law, we hate that we sin, and we hate that we love sin so much, right? Don't you hate that you love sin so much? We do love sin, don't we? Can you admit that today? Can you say with Paul in Romans 7? For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, you know, some people think when they read Romans 7 that, that, that that's Paul speaking of his life before he became a Christian, before he came to trust and treasure in Jesus. But the psalmist would read Romans 7 and say, Duh! Of course that's Paul speaking about himself. Duh! Of course that's a picture of the Christian life. The good that we want to do, we don't do enough. And the evil that we don't want to do, we do far too much. And that's the pattern of our lives. We see our sin, we blush, we're ashamed, we feel awful that we've broken God's law, we hate that we sin, and then we see Jesus. And then we see Jesus. And oh, how glorious it is to see Jesus. We see Jesus saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the pattern. Sin, Jesus, mercy. Sinking in the depths of our sin, blushing, crying out for mercy. Seeing Jesus and being rescued by his mercy. That's hope. That's everyday Christianity. We sin, we hate it, we blush, we see Jesus, we revel in his mercy. And there's a weight to God's mercy. God's mercy, the psalmist is telling us here, settles at the bottom. Mercy, mercy is kind of like a slinky. When you're a kid, you put a slinky on the steps, and what does the slinky do? It just goes all the way down. That's how God's mercy works. It's like a slinky. It plunges into the depths of our sin and our mess. Jesus dives into the depths of our sin with no hazmat suit on, no disinfectant, no gloves, because mercy does not mind getting dirty. Mercy gets underneath our mess and lifts us up to Jesus. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. God gets underneath our mess, and he lifts us up. Christian, today you are being held up by the everlasting, merciful arms of Jesus. So yeah, this psalm starts off rather dark, doesn't it? by highlighting the depths of our sins, but it ends with white, hot hope. you got to hear the bad news first. 
you got to hear the bad news before the good news sounds good. And the good news of Psalm 130 is that Jesus does not use Sharpie markers to keep track of your sins. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Verses 3 and 4 should shock us as well. Jesus can't remember our sins. If you're in union with Christ because you've repented of your sins and you're trusting in Him alone for your salvation, then guess what? There's no scorecard. Jesus isn't marking your sins in a book to bring up with you later. With Jesus, there's no Sharpie marker permanently keeping track of our sins. Yahweh does not keep our sins logged in His mind for future punishment. There's no Sharpie marker, but there is forgiveness. If Jesus did keep track of our sins, the psalmist tells us here, no one could stand. We'd all be exposed and undone. So that means that no one is going to stand before Jesus and say, you got that part wrong, Jesus. I'm not a sinner. I'm not a rebel. You're wrong, Jesus. No one's going to say that ever. Why? Well, for one, his white-hot glory has a way of humbling people. You read that in the Bible all the time. Jesus doesn't even have to say a word. He just shows up and people fall on their face. He just shows up and people are scared to death. So no one is going to stand before Jesus and tell him that he's wrong about his diagnosis of humanity because his very presence will shut them up and prove it. But... Jesus also has a machine that can play back every single second of your life if he wants to. I mean, if someone really wanted proof that they were a sinner because they did not believe it, well, Jesus has this computer that has this hard drive with so much space on it, he can pull up every second of every human being's life and compare it to his holy law and then show us just how messed up we are. So no one can stand in Jesus' presence and claim innocence. But there are people who will be very comfortable when they see Jesus. There are people who know that Jesus deleted all of their files. There are people who rejoice because in the gospel they have heard Jesus say, bring your internet history and I'll bring the bread and wine. That's what communion is. That's what the Lord's Supper is. We bring our baggage. We bring our shame. We bring our internet history. And Jesus brings the bread and wine. Christians are people who know what it's like to be forgiven. And therefore, they love Jesus and they want to honor him. At the throne of grace, tears of joy will fall from our eyes And arguments and excuses will fall from our lips. We won't won't need them. All excuses for our sins and all arguments for our goodness will fall from our lips when we see Jesus. We'll have none. Now, what's interesting about the Hebrew of verse 3 is that the psalmist uses a shortened form of Yahweh's name. Yahweh is God's covenant name. 
It's translated as Lord in most English translations with all capital letters. And so the psalmist says in verse 3, if you, O Yah, should mark iniquities. Now what does this mean? Why does he use Yah instead of Yahweh? Why does the psalmist use the shortened form of Yahweh? Well, Old Testament scholar Alec Motier says that Yah is a term of endearment. That the shortened form of Yahweh, Yah, is a term of endearment. And the context here shows us why. What's the context? He's drowning in the depth of his sin. Alec Motier says, Yahweh is at his most loving and most loved when the sinner comes for forgiveness. Jesus is most loving and most loved when a sinner comes to him for forgiveness. That's what the psalmist means here when he says in verse 4, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The idea of fear here is one of gratitude. It's kind of used about five different ways in the Old Testament. Depending on the context, it tells you what it means. It, it's the idea of gratitude. It's, it's our sheer gratitude for his forgiveness that causes us to love and serve him. Now notice it does not say this. With you there is punishment that you may be feared. But instead, with you there is forgiveness. Now, you expect it to say, with you there is wrath, with you there is anger, with you there is punishment, and therefore you are to be feared. But no, it's forgiveness that drives our fear, not punishment. It's forgiveness that drives us to be grateful and to want to love and serve Jesus. That's what it means to fear the Lord here. In the Old Testament, when God is the object of of fear, the emphasis is upon awe and reverence and wonder and astonishment that then makes you want to go live for him and it makes you want to love him. It's being flabbergasted. What? I'm, I'm forgiven? Oh my goodness. I love you. I want to live for you. I'm forgiven? I love you now. I want to live for you. That's the idea. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, that there may be awe and wonder, that we would be flabbergasted at how merciful Jesus is to us. Listen, we need the awe of God every single day to be awestruck at how merciful He is to us. But never forget that forgiveness is costly. It's actually very bloody. The Hebrew word for forgiveness here in verse 4 is literally dripping with blood. It occurs all over the book of Leviticus as it describes the blood that was required to be shed in order for sinners to find forgiveness. And this word for forgiveness here, it's only used of God in Scripture. It's never used of people forgiving someone. It's only used of God forgiving sinners. Never does this word occur in any of its forms does it refer to people forgiving each other. It's always God. And the same word comes from the root word for sprinkling. So what does that mean? An ancient Israelite worshiper would bring an animal to the sanctuary or to the temple and they would place their hands on the animal's head and they would transfer, if you will, their sin, their guilt, their shame 
to the animal, and then the animal would die in their place. The animal's blood would be shed for that person's sin, and then the priest would take that blood and splash it on the sides, sprinkle it on the sides of the altar, and so the worshiper could see with their eyes that they were forgiven, and then the priest would pronounce that they were forgiven. Now, any smart ancient Israelite worshiper knew that there must be something more to this story, to this idea of forgiveness, sprinkling with blood. No Israelite would tell you that this was all there was because they knew that an innocent animal, an animal that could do no wrong, an all-moral animal, without any morals, it couldn't do right or wrong, they knew that an all-moral animal could not truly cover the sins of a moral creature, namely a human being who's a sinner. They knew that truly only a human being could atone for another human being. So they had this sense that there was more coming. They had this sense wrapped up in their worship that there was more coming. They were looking forward to something more, namely Jesus, the promised Messiah. They knew that a Redeemer was coming that would die in their place. They knew that all of these sacrifices were ultimately pointing toward Jesus. And that's the idea behind waiting that we see in the next few verses. So look at verse 4. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All of the animal sacrifices under the old covenant were pointing toward Jesus coming. And the Israelites knew this. They didn't understand it completely. They didn't have all the facts. And they certainly didn't know as much as we know. But they knew a Messiah. They knew a Redeemer was coming. They were in the dark on some details. And so we know more than they did. That reminds me of another great quote by Alec Motier. He said this, The Psalms are written by people who knew a lot less about God than we do and loved God a lot more than we do. I think that's true. And it's humbling. They knew a lot less about God than we do because we have the New Testament. But they probably loved God a lot more than we do. But they did know something in God's word about a coming redeemer. They were hoping in God's word, as verse 5 says. They were hoping and waiting for the Messiah to come. They knew that in Genesis 3, God promised to send a redeemer to crush the head of the serpent. They knew that in Deuteronomy 18, God said that he would send someone greater than Moses. They knew that on and on in the Old Testament, there were hints at Jesus coming. This is what any Yahweh-fearing Israelite was looking forward to. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they were hoping in. They were looking forward to Jesus coming and living a perfect life and dying a perfect death in their place. And just like the redemption that they experienced in the Exodus, they were expecting a future redemption from the presence of sin. That's the idea behind the word in verse 8. The Hebrew word for redemption carries the idea of transferring ownership through the payment of a price. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Paul says in Galatians 3.13. 
Through his sacrificial death, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin to buy us back out of the slave market of sin. And that's what the ancient Israelites were looking forward to and hoping in, the coming of the Messiah to redeem them. And they, like us, were waiting for Jesus, but they were not waiting in fear. They were full of hope, not fear. They were not awaiting Jesus in fear, and neither should we. You don't wait for someone that you fear. You don't wait for someone expectantly that you are afraid of with anticipation. I'm so excited. I want to see that person. They hate me and want to kill me. I'm scared of them. No one waits like that. You wait for someone that you love. Notice that the psalmist is so excited here that he says it twice, like a lover gets giddy when they speak of their lover. He says, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, I'm waiting. It's like the psalmist can't contain himself. He's so excited looking for and waiting for the one whom his soul loves. He's like a watchman waiting for morning to come so that he can go home and rest and sleep. The psalmist is like a child on Christmas Eve. He just can't wait for morning. It's like each minute on the clock that passes is like 10,000 years to him. And so this is how I picture it being when Jesus returns. I think it's the best picture we have. It's a picture of a dad coming home from Vietnam and being greeted by his family. Isn't that great? That's how I picture us meeting Jesus. And I'm planning on wearing some 70s clothes and having a 70s haircut like the kid in the back. If Jesus wills. That's how I picture us meeting Jesus. And you better watch out because I might knock you down to get to him first. You've been warned. You might get a skinned knee if you're close to me when it's time to see Jesus. You've been forewarned. forewarned. I cannot wait to see my Savior. So let me ask you this morning. Do you long to see Jesus Are you looking forward to it? Martin Luther called it the most happy last day. Do you view it as the most happy last day? Do you view standing before Jesus and say, I'm going to be so thrilled and happy? How do you view the last day? Are you scared? Fearful? Are you dreading it? Can you honestly say this morning that you were waiting for Jesus to get here like the guy working the night shift can't wait for sunlight so that he can go home? If you are not giddy with excitement for Jesus to return like watchmen waiting for the morning, then you need to go back to verse 4 and camp out there. You need to spend the night with verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. You see, verse 4 catapults you into verses 5 and 7. Verse 4, forgiveness, catapults you to verse 5, soul waiting. It's only when you can say, I am completely forgiven. I am completely clean. It's only then that you can say, I can't wait to see Jesus. We know that judgment awaits every single human being born into this world when they die, believers and unbelievers. The Bible makes that very clear. You cannot argue with that. But there is a difference between what happens at judgment for the unbeliever and the believer. For the unbeliever, the final judgment is one of terror and one of being completely exposed. Every unbeliever will stand before God and be exposed as sinners, exposed as rebels who broke God's law. 
It will be a time of fear. It will be a time of sadness for them because Jesus has kept track of all of their sins with a Sharpie marker. But please understand this. The final judgment isn't primarily about striking fear in the unbeliever. Rather, it's primarily the occasion where God publicly and definitively demonstrates his love for his elect people. It's primarily about his people being vindicated and God being glorified. It's primarily when God displays his steadfast love and plentiful redemption that the psalmist mentions in verse 7. And what is this steadfast love? It's the Hebrew word that many of you know by now, chesed. This is God's unwavering faithfulness to his people and his promises. Hesed, translated in verse 7 as steadfast love, is Yahweh's loyal covenant love. I've told you this before many times, but I think the best definition for the Hebrew word hesed, usually translated as steadfast love in English, comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Hesed, I think, is best defined with her description, that it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. And so judgment day is what we are waiting for so we can see Jesus. But the final judgment will strike fear and terror in every unbeliever as they stand before their judge, Jesus. And if you're here today and Jesus is not your everything, call, call out to him. Say, have mercy on me. He's saying to you, come, come, come and drink and be satisfied. The offer is there, the, the invitation is there from Jesus. Come and drink and be satisfied. Will you do that today? If not, it will, you, the judgment, when you stand before Jesus, you'll be full of fear and terror when you stand before your judge. And if you think Judge Judy is tough, you know, you watch her, and she strikes fear in people, you know, when she renders her judgment, you know, because she can see through everybody's baloney, right? Wait until you see Judge Jesus. He has x-ray eyes, and he sees through all the baloney. At the final judgment, unbelievers will be finally convinced of their guilt, and they will be tried according to God's standard of righteousness, the law. Jesus will pull out a book with every sin recorded with a Sharpie marker. And unbelievers will remember their sins when their hearts are exposed. And their sins, which are brought up at judgment, will prove publicly that God's sentence of judgment on them is indeed righteous and just. They will be shown how they have offended God by breaking his law and trampling his glory under their feet. And so for the unbeliever, their sins will be remembered and brought up at the last judgment. A movie of their life, if you will, will be played and they will see it publicly and they will be convinced of their guilt. They'll hate it. They'll hate God for it. But they will be convinced of their guilt. They will not be able to deny that. But what about believers? What will it look like for us when Jesus returns? Will it be awkward? Will it be a time of fear and trembling? What will it be like? It will be like that picture of that family being reunited with their father when he returned home from Vietnam. It will be a time of joy. Why? Because Jesus isn't keeping track of our sins. Of course, Jesus is all-knowing. 
He's omniscient. He knows your sins. He could tell you exactly how many times you sinned on any given day of your life. But if you are in union with Christ, God dealt with your sins at the cross. Jesus offered himself up once for all for all your sins. God dealt with your sins at the cross. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, you were condemned with him. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross, Christian. Now let me say that again because I'm not sure we believe it. God dealt with your sin at the cross. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, you were condemned with him. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross, Christian. When you believed and you were justified by faith in Jesus, that was God's final judgment on your sin. Justification, being declared righteous. Justification is God's final judgment on your sin. When God declares you righteous, that is his final judgment on your sin. Christian, that's it. That's his final judgment on your sin. And that happens because you're crucified with Christ, because you're in union with him. We have received the same verdict from the heavenly court that Jesus received, which was, you're righteous, you're perfect. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's our verdict because we're in Christ. God looks at us and says, I'm well pleased because I see my son. And that means that right now, This is so mind-blowing. Right now, we are as righteous before God as Jesus is. Let that sink in for a moment. We, sinners, trusting in Christ, are as righteous before God right now as his son Jesus is. You don't believe me? Well, what does John say in 1 John 4, 17? By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world now that doesn't seem like those words should go together confidence for the day of judgment confidence for judgment confidence when i as a sinner stand before god i can have confidence for the day of judgment yes why because as he is so are we in this world right now We are as righteous before God right now as Jesus is. Right now, we're like Jesus. We're blameless. We're righteous. We're justified. As Jesus is right now before his Father, we are in this world. We are as righteous as he is right now. We're in union with Christ. And what does that mean? It's a phrase that you hear in most of my sermons. What does it mean that we're in union with Christ? I've told you this before. I think it's the best definition from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, union with Christ, he says, it's as if all the medals and honors of Christ are pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. What does it mean to be in union with Christ? It's as if all the medals and honors of Jesus have been pinned to your chest and then all of heaven salutes you. You know what that means? That means that we should have saluted one another when we came in here this morning. Jesus has credited us with his righteousness, given us all of his medals, all of his honors, so we should have saluted one another. Think about that. That will change a church dynamic, won't it? What if we started seeing one another as counted righteous in Christ? What if we started seeing one another as having all the medals and honors of Christ pinned to our chest? We'd probably salute one another. 
Think how that could change this church. A person in the church that bothers you? I know none of you are that way. What if you saw them as being counted righteous in Christ? Think how that could change your marriage. What if you started seeing your spouse as being counted righteous in Christ? That'll change your marriage. So why don't we do this? Let's try this by God's grace, shall we? To see others as counted righteous in Christ. And you know what? With all glory going to Jesus right now, I'm going to salute all of you who are in union with Christ. Isn't that good news? That's why Jesus isn't bringing up our sins at the final judgment. Martin Luther said, only the devil brings up forgiven sin. Jesus is not bringing up your sins when he sees you, Christian. Gospel means good news. If your sins are being brought up by Jesus on the last day, then that's not good news, is it? God will judge all men, and their hearts will be laid bare. Before the Christian, it will be a day of good news. It will be good news because Jesus is not playing a movie of our lives for the whole world to see. The sins of the ungodly will be remembered afresh, but not ours. Believers will be comforted on that day because we will see Jesus, our great and merciful high priest, our faithful high priest. It will be a day of rejoicing because he has redeemed us from all of our iniquities, as verse 8 promises. And that's why we have hope. So is Jesus bringing up your sins when you stand before him, Christian? No. Thank God, no. Is Jesus playing a movie of your life for all to see, Christian? Thank God, no. What a terrible way to start eternity. That would be off. Who wants to have a movie of their entire life shown for everyone to see? Who wants to have all of your words, your actions, your thoughts, your motives shown on a screen for all to see? Not me. As a kid, I was frightened by this idea. I thought it was going to happen. I really thought it was going to happen. I thought every person in the world would watch this long, drawn-out movie of my life showing me sin over and over and over again. It was awful how plagued I was with that thought for so long. What a terrible way to start eternity. It would be kind of hard to enter into the joy of the Lord after seeing a movie of our lives played for the watching world, wouldn't it? What an awful way to begin eternity. So how do we deal with our sins until that day? What do we do as we live with the reality of Romans 7? Well, you read Romans 8.1. That's what you do. Romans 8.1 photobombs Romans 7. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired Romans 8.1 to photobomb Romans 7. Romans 7, I'll read it again, 15 and 19. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then here comes Romans 8.1, photobombing Romans 7 in the background. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so how do we deal with our sins, our sins until that day? We confess like the psalmist does in Psalm 130. We repent, and then we wait with hope. But our hope is a rugged hope. Biblical hope is not a pansy. Biblical, Christ-centered hope is rugged. It endures hardships. It endures accusations. Biblical, Christ-centered hope is rough around the edges. Biblical, Christ-centered hope fights when it can't feel. Biblical Christ-centered hope does not rely on feelings, but rather on faith in God's word. As verse 5 says, and in his word, I hope. And because Psalm 130 is full of so much gospel hope, guess what? Satan hates Psalm 130. 
The devil hates Psalm 130. You know the devil cannot stand this psalm. And so what does he typically do? He attacks the wonderful truth in this psalm by telling you and me all the time, well, you've really done it now, haven't you? You promised Jesus that you would never do that again, and you did it again. He won't forgive you. Not this time. Or even if he does, don't you know how disgusted he is with you? He certainly doesn't like you right now. You can't go into his presence. You need to wait a while. Let him cool off. Just stay away from Jesus for a while. That's the devil's M.O. And he knows that if we do that, then he has the time and the opportunity to pile on the guilt and to pile on the shame. Satan knows my name, but he calls me by my sin. Jesus knows my sin, but he calls me by my name. Satan knows my name, but he calls me by my sin. Jesus knows my sin, all of it, but he calls me by my name. Biblical hope knows this and it fights. And here's how hope fights. Martin Luther was continually harassed by the devil. Here's how he described how to fight with hope. He says, when I go to bed, the devil is always waiting for me. When he begins to plague me, I give him this answer. Devil... I must sleep. That's God's command. Work by day, sleep by night. So go away. If that doesn't work, and he brings out a catalog of sins, I say, yes, old fellow, I know all about it. And I know some more you have overlooked. Here are a few extra. Put them down. Listen, if you feel like you can't or shouldn't run to Jesus because you are ashamed, that means you need to run to Jesus. That means the devil's out doing his thing to keep you from Jesus. Always run to Jesus. Always run to Jesus. You are always welcome. He doesn't want you to run away from him. He wants you to run to him. And Jesus will never stiff arm you or be so busy on his iPhone that he's not really listening or paying attention to you. He's attentive, the psalm says, to our cries for mercy. He's attentive to our cries for not getting what we really deserve. And he lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 Listen. Nothing thrills Jesus more than to see one of his elect that his father gave to him come running to him. So whenever you feel like you can't or shouldn't run to Jesus because you feel unworthy or dirty, that means you need to run to him. And we can run to Jesus when we are our dirtiest and when we are our filthiest because Jesus isn't keeping track of our sins. And when you feel that way, remember what Martin Luther said to his friend Philip. Come, Philip, and in defiance of the devil, let us sing the psalm, Lord, from the depths to thee I cry. Let us sing it in full chorus and extol and praise God. So why don't we do that today? Let's stand and let's sing the last song in defiance of the devil. Let's stand and sing of our risen Savior in full chorus and in defiance of the devil. Let's sing and extol and praise our God for his body on the cross, his blood poured out for the weight of every curse upon him, and that his perfect love could not be overcome. Let us sing in full chorus and in outright gospel-centered defiance of the devil because we belong to Jesus now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news out of Psalm 130, Father. Would you impress it into our hearts that we would believe it, Father. That we would have hope in your word, biblical, Christ-centered, rugged hope that fights and clings to your promises and clings to the gospel.
that when we sin, that we would just run to you knowing that nothing thrills you more. Thank you for how good you are, how merciful you are, how gracious you are. Oh Lord, may we be flabbergasted anew this morning for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.